0: Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist and former Australian Treasury official. The aim of this show is to help you better understand the big economic issues affecting all our lives. We do this by considering the theory, evidence and by hearing a wide range of views. I'm delighted that you can join me for this episode. Please check out the show notes for relevant information. Now on to the show. Hello, thanks for tuning into the show. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Nicholas Gruen about economic forecasting. Nicholas is CEO of Lateral Economics. He's been described by the Financial Times as chief economic writer, Martin Wolf, as a brilliant man who deserves to be better known, and by former Australian Finance Minister Lindsay Tanner as Australia's foremost public intellectual. This conversation was inspired by an article that Nicholas had published in late August in the Financial Times. How to Improve Economic Forecasting. The FT's one-line summary of the article was, Myopia and groupthink mean this science is not as evolved as it could be. This episode is in two parts. The first was recorded prior to Nicholas's article coming out, and in the second part we reconvened to go over some of the feedback that he received on the article. The video version of the first part is available on Nicholas's YouTube channel. I'll include links in the show notes to the YouTube channel and to material mentioned in the episode. Okay, let's get into the conversation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas, uh, good to be catching up with you again on economic forecasting. Likewise. So, Nicholas, last month the Bank of England announced that Ben Bernanke, so the former chair of the Federal Reserve in the US, he is to lead a review into forecasting forecasting at the Bank of England. So the the Court of the Bank of England's pleased to announce Dr. Ben Bernanke has agreed to lead a review into the bank's forecasting and related processes during times of significant uncertainty. Well we've had plenty of those. And he'll be supported by the bank's independent evaluation office. Now Nicholas, you've had some thoughts on what Ben Bernanke could offer to the Bank of England regarding forecasting, haven't you? So would you be able to uh, give us an overview of what those thoughts are, please?
1: Sure. So, their thoughts. I'm not terribly hopeful, and that's an amazing thing to say uh, about Ben Bernanke. I regard Ben Bernanke happens to have a Nobel Prize on his shelf. I, you'll notice that I don't. Um, and I also think he's a great guy. You know, he's a very sensible, practical economist with a lot of understanding of empirical economics, and happened to be one of the world's experts on the Great Depression at the time when, boy, did we need an expert on the Great Depression in the Fed. So that's all great. I fear that Ben Bernanke, like a really scandalously large (laughs) proportion of economists, are so caught up in their own discipline that they haven't noticed what has happened uh, in adjacent areas. And this is a little bit like Uh, What's been going on is something quite like what Daniel Kahneman and Danny uh, and and Amos Tversky, if I got that right, um, were cooking up with uh, behavioural economics. Um, It's happened a little since then, but a guy that many people will have heard of, Philip Tetlock, he got tenure in about 1982 or three. And uh, he decided that he would now engage in a long-term project that he always wanted to engage in, but you can't if you don't have tenure because you get sacked before you don't get a publication if this is a long-range thing. And what he wanted to measure was do geopolitical experts, uh, you can call Tom Friedman, he certainly uh, um, poses as a geopolitical expert, the New York Times columnist, but also... Uh, intelligence analysts, academics, uh, international relations academics, if you ask them to forecast events, do they add value? Do they, the fact that it's quite clear they know more than your average bear, does that translate into actually having actionably better capacity to say what's going to happen? And the answer was, on average, barely, and then he divided that up into experts that did add something, and they didn't add that much, and experts that actually were worse than random <laughs> or worse than a naive prediction. And he divided them up into hedgehogs and foxes. Uh, hedgehogs know one big thing, and that means that their forecasts are worse than yours or mine, Gene, uh, because we're just sort of doing our best with it, whereas the hedgehog will have one big thing, he'll be anti-communist or pro-communist or this or that. And that makes their forecast worse. And a fox, I think of someone like uh, the economist John Maynard Keynes or Paul Krugman as a fox, someone who knows many things and is trying to balance all those things and to work out how much this matters and how much that matters and how much do I know and so on. Now, that's pretty striking, but it doesn't tell us exactly what to do, but there is one thing that the study showed us, and it didn't. we didn't actually need the study to show us, but it gives us a very concrete illustration of a problem, which is, and this goes on in economics, which is that if you don't issue your forecasts in a form that can be backtested, that, that we can revisit and say, was that a good forecast or a bad forecast, and how did it compare with your peers? you're basically, you know, it's a bit like um, fortune telling. Mm. And to do that, what Tetlock did was he forced analysts to say precisely what they were predicting would happen, or in fact, he would specify uh, something like "My Mikhail Gorbachev will continue to be the Secretary of the General Committee of the Communist Party or whatever it was called then, by the end of 1988, uh, what are the chances? And then you would have to say, I think the chances are 88% or 23%. Not probably, which means somewhere between 51% and 100% and not unlikely and not you can't rule this out, the, the sort of things you read in a newspaper column. Now, we need to do that with economic forecasts.
0: Yeah, yeah. So just for background, so Philip Tetlock is a Canadian-American political science uh, professor at University of Pennsylvania. And, yeah, he wrote that book, Super Forecasting
1: or Super Forecasters. I was going to get on to that. Yeah, which I'm going uh, sure to we'll talk about. That's the book for the people who can watch, not the people yep. who are listening. I'm holding it up to the microphone. Thank you. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so he was looking at... Uh, you mentioned geopolitical forecasts, but you know, we're interested in economic forecasts now. We know, and I guess the general public knows, that economic forecasts haven't had, you know, there have been some notable failures. And, I mean, in Australia, they go way back. I mean, I always remember the, I mean, I guess I was young at the time, I was in high school, but the Treasury and was forecasting the soft landing during, uh, was it the 90, 1990, well, it is, 1991 recession? yeah. yeah. Ended up That's being right. the worst recession since uh, yeah. the Depression. That's yeah. right. That's and right. And then, you know, the problems. Yeah, and there are other notable examples. More recently, we've, we've been expecting wages to pick up. and For, for about, higher. yeah,
1: well over a decade. It just goes yeah. on. And the and to their credit, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank published these graphs. I might see if I can put one uh, in the show notes or on screen, or the editor can put one on screen, where you see wage growth gradually trending down with every year the forecast is for it to come back to the long-term, what was the long-term trend average. It's no longer the long-term trend average.
0: Yeah, and there are some charts like that in the latest intergenerational report that the Treasury's put out that Jim Chalmers launched today, um, which show just how bad those long-run projections have been. Uh, So... You know, it's a it's a problem both in the short term and the in yeah. the long term uh, with economics. Yes, so I, I suppose um, yeah, it'd be good to sort of to diagnose. I mean, what are the what's the actual issue? I mean, the problem is that the the economy is fundamentally difficult to forecast. Because well,
1: listen, no, but I mean, we're not even trying. So to try, we would nail economic forecasts down to something that can be properly back tested. So. I We have a forecast. You may know what the Treasury's forecast is for wages or growth next year. I don't. Uh, you just Give us a number, even if you don't know it, uh, the sort of thing you think it should be around. Uh, what, for wages? Uh, wages or for growth, or for economic growth. Uh, it's probably around 2% or 2.5% or Two something.
0: 25 Okay, yeah,
1: so yeah. 2.5%. So our first problem is that... If the forecast is two point five percent and it comes in at two point six two percent, is that a success or is that a failure? So, because two point five percent, we call it a point forecast, and the chances that it comes in exactly at that number are infinitesimally small. I just have to add decimal points, and eventually it won't be two point five zero 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 it will be it will fall on one side or the other of 2.5 so we need if a, if we're going to backtest a forecast we need a forecast that we can declare a success or a failure and the next thing we need is we need the forecaster to tell us how confident they are that it's going that, that event will happen and that happens to be exactly how weather forecasters forecast They give us an event, it will rain, which I'm sure has a meteorological definition of, you know, more than this amount of precipitation in 24 hours or in in an hour, it will rain and it will rain with this degree of probability. Now what's beautiful about that is Daniel Kahneman says that there there are places where he said this. I think he's, no doubt he's been more circumspect in other places, but I've heard him say all professions are overconfident. Well, weather forecasters are not overconfident because the confidence with which they express themselves becomes part of the metric by which we judge them, and so they make a point of being exactly the right degree of confidence. So I think of weather forecasting as one of the few Socratic areas of domain expertise because it knows what it knows and it knows the limits of that knowledge. So that's what we need to start to try to do with economists. And I think it was you who sent me this uh, thing in the last six months where some of the techniques that Philip Tetlock has perfected, has developed, have started to show dividends in economic forecasting. Now, one, one thing we haven't explained yet is that, that in that book, Super Forecasting, Philip Tetlock took the ideas with which he demonstrated how little value was added and how some types of people added more value than others, and he asked himself the question, could we identify the very best, the people who consistently add the most value? Could we understand more about how they do that? Could we get them together and get them to help each other? And the answer is that using these simple and commonsensical techniques, you can actually start to get a lot better, certainly at um, geopolitical forecasting. And now there's some evidence that we may be able to get better at economic forecasting.
0: Right. So with weather forecasting, so in your you've been working on a an article on this and you've mm. identified that weather forecasts are much better than they were... 30 years ago yeah. now that's because of I mean from my understanding is that's because of the ingestion of so much new data yeah. and I mean we've seen with that integrated marine observing system for example the IMOS uh, organization yeah. Yeah. that we've done some work for that there's a whole bunch of data that comes from the ocean and and that helps with weather forecasts they've got huge numerical models and there are physical processes involved that they can actually model Whereas yeah, with economics, it's a lot, a lot more challenging. So, um, yeah, whether I guess it, it is embarrassing how economic forecasting hasn't hasn't improved, and I, I suppose that does suggest we need to we need to adopt a different approach. It's not necessarily going to be we're not necessarily going to improve our forecasts by building more complicated models or bringing in more data. Perhaps yeah. we do need to adopt a new approach along the lines of this super forecasting methodology. And Mm. you mentioned, yep, uh, there was that evidence about how they're forecasting the Fed rate decisions uh, much more accurately than others, their super forecasting approach. So I guess you were starting to unpack it. What do you see as the main elements of this super forecasting approach, Nicholas?
1: So one of the things that I think is quite interesting and useful is that like Daniel Kahneman, who was the last person who really, I won't say revolutionised because it's not true, but he really, he started a whole new way of thinking about things within economics and managed to get himself a Nobel Prize for his trouble. And he's a psychologist and so is Philip Tedlock. And Philip Tedlock is drawing our attention to something that's incredibly important because it lies outside of economics, economists just ignore it. And what he's saying is that if you want to be a good forecaster, you must forecast in a particular way. Um, I'll say you must have a certain kind of psychology. Now, in fact, in philosophy, there is a, a term for this, I don't much fancy it, but the term is virtue epistemology. That is, if you want to if you want to be good at knowing, if you want to be a good scientist, if you want to be good at mastering a domain and being useful to other people by not being overconfident, by actually knowing how much you know and making it count, then you have to exhibit virtues. You have to exhibit actual virtues. You have to have the courage of your convictions. You have to have the humility to know when other people or events might be make it time for you to revise your opinion. Is this reminding you of lots of economists you've talked to, Gene? <laughs> uh, perhaps not. So so the list that I put in this um, op-ed that I've written for the Financial Times and may have been published by the time you uh, people get to listen to this conversation, what qualities does he see in super forecasters? As well as mastering the ne- necessary formal techniques, which we economists are very strong on, They're open minded, careful, curious, and self critical. Aware, like Socrates, of how little they know, they're constantly seeking to learn from unfolding events and from respected colleagues. So that's how you forecast. I would argue that is how you do anything that is expert. And there's a really important thing here because even if we can't improve forecasting much and one thing I do want to throw in parenthetically on that question is that when economists make for when a central bank or a treasury makes forecasts this is a forecast of how certain economic aggregates are going to move that they plan to try to manipulate on on the way through so it's a very uh, Mm. it's a very different kind of forecasting the forecasters of the weather don't say well it's going to be a 30% chance of rain on Tuesday and we're going to be trying to make it a 30% chance of rain on or, or we're going to be making trying to make it a, a 20% chance of rain. So so it's it's a lot more complicated. But one of the things that a super forecaster might do, a person of that kind of temperament might do, is they might say, well, are point forecasts much use to us? And the answer is I don't think that, I mean, uh, quite apart from the fact that we can't backtest them, uh, I think the most important thing I want to know as a business person doing planning of for something or as an employee, uh, and I'm thinking should I buy a house or buy an investment property or whatever, seemed, I think the most important metric I want, the most important thing I want forecast is what is the chance of a recession in the next six months or 12 months or two years? So I think we should be trying to forecast a lot more along those lines. Now, there's a problem, and that is that, well, firstly, let's talk about the problem of forecasting at the moment. Because economists' forecasts are not probabilistic, because we don't test an economist according to They don't issue those forecasts like there is a 40% chance of recession or whatever. Almost all the time, even when a recession is more likely than most other times, it's still unlikely that there will be a recession. And so now what we've got is we've got all the forecasters in the same situation as footy tippers, which is I might want to say that the Back what do you call the, the last, the non-favourite in a horse race or a football game? I, I might want to say that I think the favourite has got an unusually large chance of losing, mm. but I still think it's more than 50%. So if people are just saying how many times did you tip the right answer, then we're not going hunting for who knows that this is a, a the, the, who's got some extra information, which is that for some reason or other some some particular players not in form or something or other, there's a lower chance of uh, the favorite winning than usual. No one has an incentive to do that if we're going to give a prize out to the person at the end of the year who tipped more winners than anyone else. And that's real. And that's what happens in economics. So, of the last 18 recessions, economists picked, uh, tipped about one or two of them. And if you're competing with other economists with how often you got it right or wrong, that's actually quite a rational strategy. So what we need is we need to find a way for economists to put their hand up and say, I think the chance of a recession have gone from, let's say, 10% per year or something like that, maybe a bit more. I think for next year, it's 35% or whatever. And then at least you get an effective you know number
0: right. so is this what Ben Bernanke should be recommending? He should be recommending that the Bank of England it provides percentage estimates of regarding its forecast so how confident it is. I mean to an extent it does that, I think, doesn't it It has fan charts it has it
1: has fan charts. it yeah. has fan charts and I think yeah, once you try to operationalize this in economics, you end up with a lot of fan charts now fan charts we may I may be able to show those on the screen and in the show notes fan charts show you a, a point forecast through time and then they say this the 70% confidence interval is this fat and the 90% confidence interval is this fat in other words if you want to know what we're the the range within which we're 90% sure that's the range. Now, the problem is that range isn't helpful to anyone <laughs> because a 90% range usually takes you from some one of the most savage recessions you can possibly imagine through to boom conditions. Mm. So we do need to think about that. But what really I think that there's a few things here. Um, one of the things is that we need to get, uh, it, this is a good way to get different teams and different forecasters to compete with each other. It's a good way to compare forecasters so that you're constantly getting feedback on who's good and who's not. The other thing that I think, it well, it also enables us to surface, you can have a, a different series, which is not in any central bank or treasury that I know of, which is the chances of recession. You can have that series and you can have people trying to forecast that. Now, there's a further problem, and the problem is that we get feedback on what growth was every time we forecast it because we, can't, we get a growth number. We don't get feedback on what, the question, was there a recession? Well, except that the answer is no. Uh, it only varies once a decade or so. That's a really big problem because if you want to ask who's the best person at forecasting recessions, then you've got to wait 20 or 30 years to even start to short, sort the sheep from the goats. Yeah. So Philip Tetlock's actually been working on this, uh, on a problem. It's not in economics. It's in is his the area that he manages to get the most funding from, which is in intelligence organisations and so on. But what he's trying to ask is, can we leverage the credibility of forecasters of things we do get a lot of feedback from for these other areas where we get less feedback? And I think the answer is, yes, we should be able to do that. Uh, and we must be able to do that in some areas and maybe not in others, and, and we don't know about this area, but that's the sort of thing that we should be exploring. Okay, so for economics, so just to summarise, are you arguing for open
0: sourcing, forecasting? Well, that's a
1: separate thing, and okay. that was what I was going to get to, which is that... so. What I want to see is that this is one area. Given that we've outsourced all kinds of things in government that we shouldn't have outsourced, <laughs> maybe we could outsource some other things we should. And we, this is the sort of thing that we can outsource. Or I don't even mean outsource. We can. What we should do: the the Bank of England, the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia, can get with the program. And the program is the smartest person is always outside the room. And in some areas, you can, in some sense, bring them in. And in other areas, you can't. But in the area of forecasting, you can. And you can hold a Tetlock-like forecasting competition. You can say, we're trying to get forecasts for this and this and this, and chances of a recession in six months, one year, and two years. And then everyone can participate. Now, The world or certainly the markets and the people in the different national countries, they want to know what's the the central bank forecast. So the central bank has its own, I think the central bank should have its own teams, team or teams in these forecasts, but they should separate out the teams from the bank itself and the bank should observe the forecast, should observe the forecasting competition And from that forecasting competition, say what it thinks is its best forecasts, and those become signed with the imprimatur of the central bank. They might be produced by the central bank team or one of them. They might be produced by somebody completely outside. They might be produced by some kind of hybrid. And all of this is visible to everyone. And so we're starting to develop a market in which we can start to see who's really good at this. And some people are going to surprise us on both the upside and the downside, by the way. So that's what I'm suggesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, what what I'd like to understand is to what extent will it be teams, interdisciplinary teams of economists and then some other non-economists maybe biz, people who are expert in business or maybe not even expert in business people who 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 are just yep. good forecasters and when i was chatting with warren hatch from uh good judgment this is a organization he set up with philip tetlock he yep. was telling me that it's people with good pattern recognition skills and they they could right. be in any discipline and people That's who right. are cognitively flexible or they they are as you were saying before they actually they're not um caught up uh, with their particular theory, they're actually yeah, they're evaluating right. everything, yeah, that's right time.
1: that's right so so the answer is we don't have to know the answer to that, but we yes, you would expect that the teams that are going to perform best will be hybrid teams, We'll have mm. economist well, technically excellent economists in them, they'll have people who look at other kinds of things there will certainly be some surprises and some people who've always had a fascination with you know certain kinds of things which turn out to be relevant to how you forecast so that's where I would expect it to to end up but maybe it'll just be economic experts if they win the uh, if they win the competitions um all this tentlock stuff will have proven itself to be irrelevant for economics but both common sense and the evidence suggest that, that that's not the way it will turn out. And there aren't that many areas where at the centre of government you can improve performance and improve, and, and through that improve economic performance somewhat. Uh, this is a, this is one of those um, billion dollar bills on the pavement that we find ourselves talking about from time to time, Gene. Absolutely, yep. And uh I uh, misremembered
0: what Treasury's forecast is. Twenty twenty three, twenty four GDP forecast for Australia one and a half percent. So not, a, I was a bit yep. off there. Well, um, but anyway, yeah, we'll put it all on the show. Not a very out.
1: memorable number, or perhaps it is memorable, but not in a good way.
0: Oh, just so many numbers out there, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I feel sorry for these politicians who get. Uh, Put on the spot about these different numbers from time to time. Oh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Fully on board with that suggestion. At the very least, it'd be a a good trial, a good pilot. uh, Yeah, exactly. Test it out, see how it all works.
1: Well, I'll just say one other thing, which is that this is again what we're talking about here is convening power, not executive power. So anyone can run this. The business council could run this. It's not. It it won't be cheap, but it's not very expensive. Uh, having worked at the Business Council, I can tell you their budget easily would easily accommodate this. You could do it for a few hundred thousand dollars. Anyone can do this. So it's, it's kind of extraordinary and pretty outrageous that we've really known this, that there are benefits here, that we can do this better, and it just gets ignored again and again. It got ignored in the review of the RBA that we had here. It's pretty terrible that... Um, we're not looking around and trying to grab hold of things that are in the ether that are starting to work and that we can benefit from. Yeah, I suppose there's a public benefit to it. It's not necessarily in
0: the interests of the people in the Treasury or the Reserve Bank or the Bank of England or their ministers. I think that's one of the the issues.
1: Yes, but economists are pretty impatient with policymakers who don't do the right thing, but they but the economists have to figure this out themselves. And I would I would have thought that uh, it's well time for this to be standard economic advice, and it's uh, very very left field economic advice at this mm. stage.
0: Okay, well, we'll see how your Financial Times op-ed is received. Uh, yep. Well, hey, let's uh, we'll... see
1: let's see what Ben says. <laughs> very good. He might be giving you a call. <laughs> yeah. Very let's good. hope. Let's hope.
0: Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor.
1: If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Now, back to the show. So, Nicholas, it's been a few weeks now since your article was published in the Financial Times. So, your article, How to Improve Economic Forecasting, and we chatted about that in uh, the previous uh, conversation. The in the lead up to that coming out so your ideas about how the Bank of England and other central banks or treasuries or finance ministries can improve economic forecasting so it's been a few weeks since that's come out and you've had a bit of feedback yeah. how how would you describe the reaction to your article
1: um i think it's been the best reaction I've, I've published three pieces in the financial times of this kind which is a sort of hey why don't we do this it's reasonably out there kind of proposal and my judgement of the comments and you've looked at them slightly more carefully than me that i looked at them you know in the first 24 48 hours and i thought they were more positive and more constructive than most than is mostly the case in comment sections it's a pretty sad state of affairs and nevertheless the case that even in a really high quality newspaper like the financial times a lot of the people they're not super ignorant and and just uh, just totally dumb but what they do is they sort of come on and they make a point and the point is a perfectly okay point one of the points for instance is well weather forecasting which i was full of praise for is different to economic forecasting because the weather doesn't mm-hmm. decide to change its mind when it sees a forecast <laughs> and human beings do it's a very good point it doesn't completely obliterate all the points I was making. Uh, So if someone wants to come on and say that, that's fine. I know that. Uh, But they're not really participating in the spirit of things. Another uh, person who wrote a letter to the Financial Times, I think his name's Tim Connington or Conton, you might know his name. Uh, He said that really what mattered was having models that have proper Allowance for monetary policy in them. Well, I'm not against having models that have a proper allowance for monetary policy in them, but it doesn't really address the point. Uh and then again, and then there were some really quite good criticisms. The other thing was really good was that I was approached by a number of people. Some of them, well, one was a large corporate which is doing Tet and forecasting tournaments internally. That was an interesting uh, exercise, and um, I've been engaged with them. Uh, I mean, they haven't been paying me or anything, but I've been suggesting that they look further afield to the services of people like Warren Hatch, who you interviewed on your podcast. Uh, He runs a thing called, well, it's called Good Judgment. I don't know whether it's Good Judgment, Inc., or Anyway, it's not the Philip Tetlock project, which is run with Inside Universities, but it's an offshoot of it, which is a commercial project. That was interesting. There was another economist who was really quite pissed off, if I might say this, uh, about the fact that forecasting prowess is not a very strong criterion of promotion, inside government agencies that deal with economics, include, including government agencies in which forecasting is a very important matter. And he's right. And I talked to him about Kaggle and how Kaggle, the data science forecasting platform that I was involved in when it started up, has changed the market to a substantial extent because people want data scientists who actually perform well and you can see whether they perform well or not on kaggle and then another person who contacted me was actually from the bank of england now i've not had that experience in australia where someone from inside government you publish something i mean it wasn't directly critical of the bank i suppose you could say it was in a way anyway he engaged me and he said well actually we do do a little bit of what you're suggesting and it's true that the Bank of England, which is about my favourite central bank, I think they've done better than any other central bank in terms of their thinking, <laughs> not, it turns out, in terms of all their judgments about uh, about inflation and so on because we do, we require a degree of clairvoyance for that and they've had a recent spate of arguably bad luck in terms of working out the future. But uh, he pointed out that the, that the Bank of England does have a very very simple in the in the form of seeking feedback from the community it asks people for their own forecast well that's a good beginning and it's better than any other bank that I know I thought it was a terrific reaction
0: oh that's good yep yeah. uh citizens panels I think they call them so I'll put a link in the show notes I thought that was really good and and it it really is heartening to see how open they are and you're right I mean I can't remember anyone from an Australian government agency getting in touch, or if they did get in touch, it would be, oh, this has to be confidential and it wouldn't be an, an official email. So I think that's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good point yeah, exactly. um, about the, yeah. the, the Bank yeah. of England. So that was great to see that. Now, just on some of those points you raised, you mentioned about uh, modelling and the, was there one comment that said, oh, okay, the, the issue was just the specification of the model? And I think you the way you reacted to that was 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 right and one of the so some of the comments i took out of the ft like there were some positive really positive comments in the comment section of the financial times it was one about mm. uh, oh this sort of approach could have helped us in the early days of covid it could have avoided us from uh having some of the yep. more uh apocalyptic or yeah ridiculous uh for ridiculous and i think there was some yeah. criticism of yeah uh, the forecast from from a sage I think they were or sage forecasters,
1: yeah that's right, sage and uh, uh it was a guy who got himself briefly famous and then pal- arguably infamous uh you put his name in these notes we have in front of us Neil
0: Ferguson I, yeah
1: yeah yeah neil Ferguson that's it uh and that and and you just have to look into that for a while to see that the model was an immensely complex. Model. Mm. It wasn't clear what it was useful for, but it wasn't useful for quickly trying to understand, you know, ask quick what if questions. It was an ornery monster of a model that produced a different result every time you ran it because it was so complex yeah. uh, just just not not built to uh, certainly not in that situation. It was not built to help people make quick probabilistic decisions uh, but because it was a model because he was at a university Imperial College as I recall I hope I hope mm. correctly then he had the stamp you know he had the brand and so we spent a fair bit of our time with his model. it was pretty low grade stuff. And so some of the negative comments or there were some
0: people who were saying, oh, well, look, you're not, you haven't taken into account the fact that we've made all these advances in economic forecasting and there are these new techniques and you, you're unaware of them. I'm not sure that that's true. And
1: Well, and I didn't mention any. No. I didn't mention any. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm unaware of some of them, but he had no evidence that I was because what he's or she is criticising me for yeah. is strictly irrelevant. There is a state of the art of forecasting. The Bank of England or anyone else is either at the forefront or a bit back from the forefront, and the way to get to the forefront is to have a process of integrity where people who are good at forecasting end up with better reputations than people who are not so good at forecasting.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the point I would make, like when I read those comments, they were almost, as I think they were assuming that, it's the model that gives the forecast that's published in the bank of england monetary policy statement or it, or in any of these uh statements from economic agencies it's actually a forecast directly from a model and it almost never is there's always an element of judgment the model is one input into the the actual official forecast yep. and if you read the yep. bank the, the publications of the bank of england that's very clear and so your approach is about taking all of the the evidence out there or different views. I mean, you know, it could be, and I think this is something I was chatting with Warren Hatch about, if I remember correctly. Warren was saying that, look, there can be value from having people in teams, like some people, someone has a model, then there's others who are more qualitative and there are others who are looking at different bits of data. You want yep. you want a variety of approaches, I think, and perspectives to get better forecasts.
1: I'd say some, I think that's absolutely right. But I think you can say something more than that. We, we exist in a society in which governments and agents and, and organisations are performing for our entertainment, if I can put it that way. At least under the gaze of the media, they're doing stuff, they're justifying them stuff, they've got comms people coming out saying this is what we're doing and they're putting over a plausible story. And then you get pundits I would say like us, except I try not to do this, but almost all pundits and almost all Twitter pundits, almost all instant experts, they come out and they say, what really what you should do is X or Y. But in fact, what you should do is a very complex and acculturated performance. So it will involve technical understanding and modelling. It will then involve judgments, as you say, But then how do you get the people with the best judgment to make the judgments? Well, we haven't really solved that problem. We just get the most senior people to make those judgments. So it's like me saying, I want a good COVID vaccine, and this is the process that we should go through to get the COVID vaccine. What I want is a process that has legitimacy because I believe that if I looked into what that process was, it would add up, it would have integrity. In the words of Charlie Munger, the highest form of civilization is a seamless web of deserved trust. In other words, there isn't a clear line between the pundit class and what you do. If you're doing anything difficult, building a bridge or dare I say it, a nuclear submarine, uh, mm. pundits can, can't actually say very much. They can say a few things about what would be really dumb, but there's so much that goes into this. And the public discussion isn't had in that kind of way. But that ultimately is one of the reasons that I'm such a fan of Philip Tetlock's stuff on forecasting and creating forecasting tournaments, because it's one of the few areas where you can start to build some objective relation between reality and us poor munchkins working away, trying to work out what that reality is. And our social and political institutions have done well. The job they've done might be the best in history, but when you look at it, it's not all that great. There are plenty of things wrong with it. So this is a rare case where there is a better way. You can see what it is. You can understand its principles, and we should really try to implement it and also learn from it how how we could extend that sense making reality contacting function.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: absolutely, fully agree there. So I mean,
0: one other point I, I just wanted to make is on that the forecasting the the whatever the you know best practice or the in terms of technical forecasting one yeah. of the uh, articles that was some, it was linked to in the uh in the comment section of the financial times was an article that was by a number of forecasting experts and one of them was uh, Jennifer Castles who works with David Hendry and uh, Hendry's been on the show and and if you're interested in these issues that would be a good conversation to go back to cuz David talks a lot about the ways that he tries to uh, get his model-based forecast as best as possible. Now, that's that can be an input into this a super forecasting approach. It's not uh, these things aren't mutually exclusive. But what he's doing, is yes, he's trying exactly. to build an econometric model, and, and right. that can be an input into the forecasting. But the point I'd like to emphasise is that the the forecasts that end up in the the reports and and that end up influencing budgets, they're never just the outcome of models because we know that a model is useful. But it, you, you, there's always a judgment involved. you're always going to be tweaking things to make it as, as because there'll be things in the model you go, hang on, that's may not be realistic in the current
1: circumstances. yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly
0: right, oh, so uh, Nicholas, I just wanted to have that quick catch up because I thought uh, yeah, that was a great article of of yours, and it's got some you know excellent feedback and I mean I think it's uh, you, you, it's probably achieved what you wanted it to achieve, I, I imagine. Yes, yeah.
1: absolutely, even though they told me I only had 650 words and then they only allowed me 570 words, so my nice paragraphs about what a big fan I was of Andy Haldane who is no longer at the Bank of <laughs> England, they were all taken <laughs> out. But there you are. I like to repeat a fan that boy. Andy Haldane, while he was a civil servant, was my favorite civil servant in all the world. Very good, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh okay. very good. I'll I'll
0: put some links in to about Andy Heldone. Uh, did you uh have you written this on your club tropo at all, Nicholas? Your
1: uh Um I'm not sure I have. I've um yeah, maybe I should. Um but but no I have because I published some articles in The Mandarin, uh which is an Australian public policy magazine if you like which is and they're always backed up onto my blog and one compared the Australian Reserve Bank with the Bank of England and uh, the and particularly the blog Notes Underground I think it's called always good to quote Dostoevsky I suppose when Greg Clark isn't quoting um, isn't quoting titles from Hemingway the Bank of England can be can be um, paraphrasing Dostoevsky in the name of its blog, Notes Underground, I think it's called. And it has lots of really interesting think pieces. It's not very standard academic stuff, although there's some of that as well. Um, I think it's a very sad thing that uh, government, certainly independent government agencies around the world don't do that a great deal more. I maybe fondly imagined that Andy was one of the movers and shakers behind that, but certainly he did Led a lot of research showing the costs of too big to fail, implicit subsidies for large banks, and uh, just did lots of uh, used the the used the independence of the central bank in a way that was um, very very helpful in difficult times during the global financial crisis and in the years after the financial crisis, as people tried to work out what had gone wrong and how to fix things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's interesting. The, yeah, I agree about the Bank of England probably being the best central bank. Certainly has the best museum. Oh. And I guess there's that literary connection. Yes. And I only learned about this when I, I went to their museum. Kenneth Graham worked there, the author oh, of uh, Wind, Wind in and the Willow. Willows. Huh. Yeah, huh. he worked there. Uh, I mean, I forget. Re- relatively senior position there in the Bank of England because they've got a uh, a little display about Kenneth Graham in their uh
1: I missed it. I missed it. I'm sorry that I missed it because I have seen that museum. It's quite small. It's just a few artefacts, as I recall, a room or two. Or am, um, I, or am I wrong it, there?
0: Yeah, it's a maybe a few rooms, but there's that great uh, yeah. display where you can lift up a bar of gold. You stick your uh, hand in a glove uh-huh. in this glass box and you're lift up an actual gold bar, which I thought yeah. was uh, pretty cool, and, you know, they've got all the, yeah, all the yeah, currency. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah. He, he got up to the rank of secretary in 1908. So I don't think he was, he wasn't the governor, but he got up to a, a senior position. Yeah, Excellent. Very good. All okay. Right. Nicholas, thanks again. That was such a, yeah, it was good to catch up because, uh, yeah, good to always interested in economic forecasting because we've had such a, unfortunately, a mixed record of it uh, yeah. in Australia and around the world. So it's, uh, Indeed. it's good to talk about a new approach and uh, well done for doing your best to advance one. Thanks very much, Jack. Righto. Thanks for listening to this episode of Economics Explored. If you have any questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email via contact at economicsexplored.com or a voicemail via SpeakPipe. You can find the link in the show notes. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd be grateful if you could tell anyone you think would be interested about it. Word of mouth is one of the main ways that people learn about the show. Finally, If your podcasting app lets you, then please write a review and leave a writing. Thanks for listening. I hope you can join me again next week.
1: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. For more content like this, or to begin your own podcasting journey, head on over to obsidian-productions.com.